This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. The scripture reading for today is Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah. And on his left were Pedaiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshullam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Pelaiah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength." The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. This is God's word. What does an ideal church gathering look like? We don't need to get too terribly creative here. Uh, We just simply need to let God's word do the talking on this, and that we'll do that as we look at Nehemiah 8. Now, on a related note, this sermon could also be titled, Evidence of Spiritual Renewal. So if you're a note taker, you've already got in your bulletin the ideal church gathering, but you could have put in parentheses underneath that evidence of spiritual renewal. What are the signs spiritual renewal is taking place in a congregation. I think Nehemiah 8 paints a picture of that. Now, as we, as we begin, here's what I want to do. I'm going to be your tour guide, and we're going to take a stroll through these 12 verses, and occasionally we'll stop, and I'll point some things out to you, 
And then at the end, we'll wrap it all up and we'll look at three characteristics of an ideal church gathering, okay? So I hope you have your Bibles open. You're gonna need them. Nehemiah 8, starting in verse one, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Now this reference to the law of Moses is likely a reference to the entire Pentateuch. That's your word of the day. You can talk about it over your lunch if you'd like. Pentateuch, penta meaning five, tuk meaning scroll, five scroll. It's a reference to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the book the people request be brought out and read. This is the book they have high regard for because they see it not just as a book, but what did the text say? They see it as something commanded by God. So this was not a new manifesto. This is the principal articles of the faith. Now what's interesting to note is that it is the people, the congregation, who tell Ezra, bring out the book. They're screaming at their leader, bring out the book. We want the book read. So it's a congregation, it's the people who initiate the activity. Verse two, so on the first day of the seventh month, the priest, Ezra the priest, brought the law before the assembly which was made up of men and women, all who were able to understand. So upon the urgent request of the congregation, Ezra brings out the book. The gathering consists of men and women, and then this phrase, all who were able to understand, likely meaning children, youth and children, teens, preteens. It's a multi-generational gathering. Now look, I love our kids' ministry. I love what, what Jody White, our children's ministries director, does. She works hard to serve our kids with, with gospel clarity and, and programmatic excellence. I really believe it's a strength here. But parents, have a plan for how you're gonna transition your kids into the corporate worship gathering of the church. Have a plan for that. One of the best gifts you can give your kids is a love for the corporate worship of their local church. It's one of the best gifts you can give your kids. Verse three, he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So Ezra proceeds to read from the Pentateuch from daybreak until noon, six hours. You got that? Put it in your notes. Six hours. Let that sink in for a minute. This is a six hour long Bible study. I'm not sure too many of us would sign on to that. Now I know we've got Netflix bingers in the crowd. I know who you are. Let me tell you something. These folks are modeling the only worthwhile binge there is out there. Okay, so here we have this multi-generational gathering and they weren't there just because they have to be there. We're told they listen attentively. For how long? Six hours. They are honoring the Lord by giving close attention to his word. Verse four, Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood all of these guys that Mark pronounced so wonderfully. (laughs) There's a reason somebody else was reading that. He's got six on his right, seven on his left. 13 men who assist with this six hour long Bible study. All 14 men are on a raised 
wooden platform that had been built for the occasion. So this gathering was not a purely spontaneous event. It had been planned for. And this platform that they built for the occasion would have benefited both hearing and seeing, which clearly the people deemed to be important for the purposes of the gathering. Now, some scholars take that further and say the raised platform wasn't just serving a functional purpose, but it was also serving a symbolic purpose of reinforcing the law's authority and importance. Verse five, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So Ezra opens the scroll, he opens the book, the people stand, Ezra praises the Lord, and then there's this threefold response from the people. They lift their hands, they say amen, amen, and then they bow down. Lifting hands occurs multiple times in the scriptures. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 28, hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help as I lift my hands toward your most holy place. Now Psalm 28 in context is is a plea for help from the Lord. So the lifting of, of hands in that case is linked with petition. God help, help. Same thing occurs in Psalm 141 and Lamentations 2. So hands lifted are an expression of of one's plea to God for help. But lifting of hands can also denote praise. Psalm 134 verse 2, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. So lifting of hands is a posture of praise. This occurs in Psalm 63 as well and is likely the, the meaning of it here in Nehemiah 8. Lifted hands are an expression of praise to God. Now listen, some of you may come from church backgrounds where lifting hands is foreign and perceived as being just flat out weird. You might see a handful of our folks with their hands raised during our time of singing. That is not some wacko cult practice, okay? Raising hands is a biblical posture of worship, okay? Second response from the people is repeated use of amen. This is a simple statement of concurrence. So may it be, so let it be. What, what is so interesting about this, though, is that they're saying this before Ezra has read a single word, This tells you something about their posture before God's word. They are submitted to it regardless of whether or not it resonates with them rationally. See, sometimes today we'll we'll hear something and then we'll say amen in response to it as if we like what we just heard. These folks are saying amen before they've heard a single word. Whatever you want to say, God, whatever you want to say, we receive it, we submit to it. We haven't heard what you've had to say, but we submit to it and we receive it. And their final response is bowing down and worshiping. The original language to bow down and worship are often the same word. And so in some contexts, it can be difficult to know which one is implied. But in either case, it's a posture of the body and an attitude of the heart, both demonstrating a reverential submission to the Lord. Verse 7. The Levites, 13 of them, (laughs) instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving them meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Okay, so I try to paint this picture for you. There's 14 men on a raised elevated platform. Ezra, he's got 13 assistants on the platform. They're reading. Now, in addition to that, there's 13 Levites on the ground scattered among the people, probably huddling them up 
as the reading was taking place, they would pause, huddling them up to either translate or make clear the meaning of what was being read. They want to make sure that everybody who's there in the gathering is understanding what's being read. They're, giving, they're making the meaning of the Bible clear. They're providing instruction so that the people understand what God's word is saying. Verse 9, then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So verses 9 to 12 contain the people's response to the reading and the explanation of the scriptures. And the first thing to notice here is that the people are weeping. Now these are not tears of joy because we're told in the next verse they're exhorted to change their countenance to that of joy. Most likely the weeping and the mourning and the grieving are over a failure to adequately observe the commands of the law. In other words, this is repentance. Verse 10 Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, sometimes we associate holiness with glumness. Holiness with gloom. We're told in these, three times in this passage, that holiness and glumness do not go together. In fact, it's holiness and joy that go together. But it's not joy mustered up from within through, through sheer mental determination. We're told the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, how does that work out exactly? Back in verse two, we're told this whole episode occurred on the first day of the seventh month. Leviticus 23, 23 tells us this is the feast of the trumpets, Many of us know this today as Rosh Hashanah, head of the year, literally head of the year. Feasts in the Bible, in general, are not parties, but they are celebrations with a purpose, celebrating God's goodness towards his people. That was the purpose of the feast. They provide occasions for fellowship with one another and with the Lord to remember and celebrate the wonderful things that God had done. The question is, why was there a feast involving trumpets? Well, there is a memorial aspect to this that would have likely hearkened back to a time when the sounding of a horn would have left an indelible mark on God's people. When is that? Well, way back in Exodus 19 and 20, God formalizes his covenant with Israel and seals it with the Ten Commandments. And at the time, that's the extent of the written word of God to them. He gives them the tablets. There was a sounding of a horn. He gives them the tablets. And effect says, here you go. You are my people. Live as such. Here you go. You're my people. Live as such. In other words, possessing the written word of God was evidence they belonged to him. Possessing the written word of God made them a unique people. The whole scene in Nehemiah 8 is about the word. It's about the word of God. Bathing in the word. And as they listened attentively and engaged mentally to understand God's word, it was a reminder to them they belong to the Lord, they are a unique people, and that is an occasion to celebrate. Verse 11, the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day, do not grieve. 
Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Now notice the connection in the text between understanding the words of the Pentateuch and celebrating with great joy. Celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Great joy awaits those who will do the hard work of engaging the mind to understand every line in the scriptures. So let me draw out three characteristics from this text on the ideal church gathering. Or it could be said three signs of spiritual renewal. Three signs of spiritual renewal. Here they are. In an ideal church gathering, we will demonstrate an appetite for the word of God, some grieving, lots of rejoicing. Signs of spiritual renewal or the ideal church gathering, characteristics of the ideal church gathering. First characteristic of an ideal church gathering is an appetite for the word of God. The word people, the word people dominates this section. It occurs 13 times in just 12 verses. And so the author is drawing our attention to the actions of the people, the congregation. And notice all the activity that they initiate in this, what they do in this. It's the people who demand the Pentateuch be brought out and read. It's the people who listen attentively for how long? Six hours, yes. It is the people who roll out the red carpet for the word. It's the people who give the word of God a royal reception. These people possess a voracious appetite for God's word. And when we connect the dots between verse one and verse six, we see that their interest isn't in God's word as merely a good book, but God's word as an extension of God himself. The scroll, Ezra reads, contains the commands. It's the speech of the living God. And notice what their response is. Their response is to give worship to God himself. In other words, the reason these people possess such a voracious appetite for the word of God is that they believe God himself is speaking to them through it. God himself is speaking to them through it. So think about this from another angle. Who's your hero? Do you have one? Somebody you admire from a distance? Uh, Maybe it's a popular culture figure, maybe it's a historical figure. Well, what if you received an invitation from that person saying they want to speak with you personally, one-on-one, tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. at PJ Piper's? Would you go? I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say I think you'd go. In fact, I think you'd be early. First time in your life you've ever been early to a 6 a.m. appointment. I think you'd be there. Why? When you're really interested in what someone important to you has to say, you will do whatever it takes to make sure you've positioned yourself to listen well. Let me say that again. When you're really interested in what someone important to you has to say, you will do whatever it takes to make sure you've positioned yourself to listen well. Do you make all the necessary preparations 
to position yourself to listen well to God's word. Now there's one other characteristic of the people's appetite for God's word, and that's their desire to understand what God's word says. This word understand, understanding is a theme in these 12 verses. Did you know that in the Bible, mindlessness is associated with idolatry and paganism? Mindlessness is associated with idolatry and paganism. Let me give you one example of this, Isaiah 44. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? The text is describing someone who walks through life thoughtlessly or mindlessly, never stopping to think things out. More specifically, this person isn't thinking about the insidiousness of idolatry, the devious nature of idolatry. This mindlessness in regard to the things of God had been the downfall of his people to begin with. Hosea chapter four, verse six, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. What is this knowledge? It's not knowledge about the water cycle or photosynthesis or how atoms work and protons work and electrons work. That's not the knowledge that that God's talking about. It's knowledge of him and his word. My people are destroyed because they have a lack of this. So in an ideal church gathering, we will come here with a voracious appetite for God's word. We will sit up, we will listen attentively when it's read, we will work hard to understand what's, what God is saying to us, and we will with one voice demand, bring out the book. That's the first characteristic. Second, in an ideal church gathering, we will demonstrate some grieving. In verse nine, we're told all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Why? Why had they been weeping as they listened to the words of the law? Well, there's another uh, story in the Old Testament where the public reading of scripture led to a similar response. Let me read it for you, it's in 2 Kings 22. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes, he tore them. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is being written there concerning us. It's conviction over sin. The public reading of scripture is leading to a conviction over sin and how far far we've fallen short. Verse 19, 
Because your heart was responsive, this is God speaking, your heart was responsive, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this, pe- this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste, and because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. So it's through the word of God that we become aware of sin. It's through the word that we're, 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 we're given a picture of how far we fall short. It's meant to have the effect of causing us to grieve over sin. That is a God-intended effect. And that's not just found in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is not pleasurable imagery. It's painful. It hurts, it pinches, but it is a God-intended effect of reading and understanding his word to us. And by and large, I would say, we don't feel bad enough about our sin. By and large, we don't feel bad enough about our sin. The self-esteem movement has done us no favors here. A few years ago, there was an article in the New York Times uh, called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. And in it, Lawrence later quotes a researcher who studied criminals and concluded this. The fact is we've put antisocial men through every self-esteem test we have. And there is no evidence for the old psychodynamic concept that they secretly feel bad about themselves. These men are racist or violent because they don't feel bad enough about themselves. Nowhere does God's word express a concern over people being too humble. Nowhere. Because the gravitational pull doesn't go in that direction. Time and again, it confronts us with our egomaniacal tendencies. So in an ideal church gathering, we're gonna experience conviction over how far we fall short. We will experience conviction over our secretly pampered sins. We will experience conviction over the myriad of ways we have failed to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In an ideal church gathering, yes, there will be some grieving. But here's the incredible teaching of the text. The people in this story were not meant to stay in a state of mourning for long. They were called to snap out of it and engage in lots of rejoicing. So they're exhorted, you saw it in the text, to enjoy great food. Exhorted to enjoy great food. Done. Sign me up. Enjoy great food, sweet drinks. Don't let your kids see this. Sorry, they're studying it. They're gonna come back to you with this one. Sweet drinks. And to celebrate, not just with joy, but with great joy. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is their strength. The joy of the Lord is their strength. What does that mean? Let's think about joy for a minute. Joy is responsive, right? Joy is responsive. Something happens in order for joy to take place, right? Something happens first, and then there's joy. Uh, Maybe in in everyday life, maybe it's the arrival of a grandbaby. Maybe it's a promotion at work a new job, something like that. Something happens in order for there to be joy. So in the context of Nehemiah, what has happened? 
that the people are called to find joy. Well, remember the historical context here. These people had experienced captivity and a new exodus out of Babylon into the promised land. The Bible's storyline has cycles of repetition. This is a second exodus. The first exodus was out of Egypt. The second exodus was out of Babylon. Now, why were they there to begin with? Why were they in Babylon to begin with? Because of their sinful disobedience. They they had disparaged the covenant that God had made with them. They were unfaithful to him. And, And God said, if you do this, you go down this road, you're going to regret this. And so God gave them over to the Babylonians. They were hauled off into exile. But in spite of that, they've been rescued. When this takes place, they've been rescued. They've been freed. They experienced the new exodus. They've been saved. They've been delivered. The theme of this is Psalm 103, verses 10 and 11. Check it out. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Just stop there for a minute. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Tell you what, that's a lot of love. That's a lot of love. So what prompts them to celebrate with great joy is God's overriding grace. Even though they've fallen so far short morally and spiritually, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. He saves, he rescues, he gives us his life-giving word as proof of our unique place in his heart. He gives us, listen, he gives us the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, who was treated as our sins deserve so that we can be treated as he deserved. This is what happens first before there is celebrating with great joy. So in order for our gatherings on Sunday mornings to be characterized by lots of rejoicing, we need new and fresh reminders of God's overriding grace and his never failing love. The catalyst for feasting is so great is his love for those who fear him. That's the catalyst for feasting. Let me tell you about a guy named Kim Shin Jo. Kim Shin Jo is a pastor uh, in South Korea, but he used to be a trained killer. In January of 1968, Jo and a team of assassins descended from North Korea, slipped through the woods in a daring attempt to kill the president of South Korea. The team of 31 commandos made it to within a few hundred meters of the president's residence before they were intercepted. A fierce battle ensued. 30 South Koreans were killed. All North Korean soldiers were killed except for one who escaped and Kim Shin Jo, who was captured. After months of interrogation and through a surprising friendship with a South Korean army general, Kim Shin Jo's hard heart started to soften. Later, he would say this I tried to kill the president, I was the enemy. But the South Korean people showed me sympathy and forgiveness. I was touched and moved. What does Romans say? It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. The South Korean government eventually released Joe. And over the next three decades, he worked for the military, 
became a citizen and then married and raised a family. And finally, he became a minister, a church minister. Today, Joe's life serves as a symbol of redemption for the entire country of South Korea. Reflecting on his arrest, he commented saying, on that day, Kim Shin Joe died. I was reborn. I got my second chance. And I'm thankful for that. He found a new birth. And it happened through God's grace, the power of Christ. But his encounter with Christ came through unexpected, surprising love of other people. Despite his betrayals and his sins, an army officer accepted him, befriended him, believed in him. At one time, he was the enemy of the South Korean people, but in the spirit of Jesus Christ, they surprised him with startling gifts of belonging, forgiveness, and even citizenship. And that is exactly what Psalm 103 is telling us. We are him. We are Kim Shin Jo. We're the ones who have tried to assassinate the cosmic ruler of the universe. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. In order for our gatherings on Sunday mornings to be characterized by lots of rejoicing, we need new and fresh reminders of God's overriding grace and never failing love. Let's pray. Gracious God, your word exposes our thoughts and attitudes and hearts and their true colors are not pretty. God, like Isaiah and Peter, we need to be brought to our knees in confession of our sin and unworthiness. For only then will our hearts be electrified by your love and grace. And so God, through your spirit, would you convict us where we have fallen woefully short of loving you with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving others as ourselves. Help us feel the pinch of sin. But just like this text teaches, you don't want us staying there. You tell us to celebrate with great joy because you don't treat us as our sins deserve. You save, you rescue, you transform May your overriding grace and never failing love fuel our rejoicing. So God, we come to you to do all of this now to the glory of Jesus. Amen.